Unity Community of Central Oregon's podcast, featuring Reverend Jane Hyatt. Conscious evolution. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> and totally unexpected, and I love it. So way back in the 1960s, a, a lovely woman who had been a model in her early years uh, had married a, a very wealthy man, and the two of them were trying to decide what to do with the world and how they could contribute to the world. And it, her name was Barbara Marks Hubbard. And she realized that the changes that we were making or trying to make in the 60s and 70s were not having a whole lot of impact because where we were operating from wasn't the right place. It didn't work. It was getting stuck where we were operating from. And so in the 70s, she created something she called the Institute for Conscious Evolution. And that was pre-internet and pre-cell phone. So, and it was just barely into the photocopying era. <laughs> <laughs> right? So she was photocopying things and sending them by snail mail and you know, calling people on the telephone. There were no emails. There was none of the organizing tools that people use today. And still, across the world, hundreds of study groups formed to explore the possibility of conscious evolution. Now, one of the things we need to remember is that in the 1960s, the idea of creationism or intelligent design did not exist, uh, you know, unless you were in a fundamentalist Christian church, in which case you were being very upset. And actually, the general population was very pro-science, very pro-humanism, very pro-evolution. So the word evolution didn't have the baggage that it has today. <laughs> So we have to keep that in mind. And this idea that we could choose to evolve ourselves to a new level of being. We could choose to leave behind a way of being that no longer worked for us and for the universe <laughs> took hold. And although a lot of the people who are now coming into their professional years may not be aware of it, they were raised in that awareness. Because literally thousands of people were thinking these things and saying these things and talking about these things, and it began to filter through the environment, through the culture, through the society. It began to become something that we all could experience. And then we went into the, the 90s and the late 80s and the early 90s and, and seemed like there wasn't the space for this idea anymore. And Barbara pulled back until she discovered something. And that something is something you all have discovered. What in large terms is called new thought. It includes unity. It includes what was then religious science and is now Centers for Spiritual Living. It includes something called divine science. Most people haven't even heard of, but those who have heard of it are very much involved with. And something that almost nobody has heard of, sanctuaries of truth and homes of truth, which really do exist all over the country. And they were all the work 
of students of one woman, a woman named Emma Curtis Hopkins. And Emma was a student of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mary Baker Eddy, and to a small extent, Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. All those people back in the mid-1800s who were waking up to something that seemed almost impossible, inconceivable in the world around them. And they said, oh my goodness, we have to give up our old ways of thinking and start to live from a new thought. So the new thought movement was born. And Barbara Marx Hubbard discovered this along about 92, 93. And she began to get together with a bunch of the leading lights in the field. And that included, oh, um, Michael Beckwith, uh, Wayne Dyer, Mary Manon Morrissey, and a whole bunch of others. And they formed something they called the Association, um, the, I'm sorry, the AGNT, the Association for Global New Thought. AGNT, agent, she liked that. So I got to talk with her in 95, and she was very excited about this, and we all were. And they, they based themselves out of Santa Barbara, and the idea was that what new thought had to bring to what she was trying to do was a whole new dimension. Because in the, the discussion groups and the work she had done with Institute of Conscious Evolution, or for Conscious Evolution, was to wake us up to the possibility that we can choose being more than we have been. We can act in directions that are more expansive, more positive, have more potential in their outcomes. So that has been fabulous, and AGNT has grown and done all kinds of wonderful things. All of the New Thought movement has grown and done all kinds of wonderful things. And then along about 2012, actually, when people started getting all worried about the end of the world, some people started resurrecting the old Institute for Conscious Evolution conscious evolution, because there were people outside of the New Thought movement who still wanted this information. So we now have two kinds of movements working for becoming rather than being stuck. You can go online and check all this out if you're interested. But there's some commonalities here I want to really explore, and, and some of the foundations of this that I think are very helpful to all of us. And the, one of the foundations for this actually comes from the Sanskrit. It's the word yoga. Now, I'm not talking about postures. <laughs> I'm not talking about my balance. <laughs> what I'm talking about is the whole science, really, that grew out of what is now today Hinduism and Buddhism, or that became the foundation for what is now today Hinduism and Buddhism, that is based on this Sanskrit word, Y-O-G-A, that at root means the same thing as our word yoke. No, not egg yolk. Yoke of an oxen, okay? Uniting, <laughs> pulling together, joining. Okay, 
yoga was a shortcut. You didn't have to go through life after life after life after life after life for thousands of years if you practiced the yoga. The yoga would begin to allow you to undo the effects of your old karma, right? And begin to step into new possibilities. And the ultimate in all of that is union with the ground of being, the source of all, the element that we call God. Well, that's all very cool. And most Americans are not at all interested in doing yoga practices. <laughs> what Barbara Marks Hubbard was able to do was to take a few of those, and she was by no means the only one in the 70s doing that. Werner Earhart was doing that with his uh, Earhart seminar trainings, which are now landmark, and other people you know, pulled from that, and uh, so on. So lots of people were beginning to introduce that, and Paramahansa Yogananda, of course, had brought it here in the 1920s. So it was slowly filtering through the culture. What yogas do, and if you really want to get a handle on this, I heartily recommend the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, P-A-T-A-N-J-A-L-I. And the best, there are several very good translations. The one that I think is the richest is by Christopher Isherwood and uh, Swami Vivekananda called How to Know God. It's a wonderful set. Anyway, so yoga is a shortcut. As you begin to do these practices, as you begin to become fully aware of what's going on in the body in any given moment, as you begin to be fully aware of what's percolating up in your thoughts, percolating up in your thoughts every moment, as you begin to actually still your normal thoughts and begin to do what we do in immunity, which is listen, yes? Listen to the divinity. Listen to that still, small voice, yeah? As you begin to be able to do that, then what you were literally is transformed into some new level of being. And what's interesting to me is that it happens at both the physical and the other levels of being, emotional, intellectual, etc. So if we think about physical evolution, which is where the baggage is in our culture today, we think of it as, you know, once there were, was no life at all, and then somehow what wasn't alive began to show up in ways that looked more like life, and then that began to be different forms of life, increasingly complex, over time. When I was a kid, my mother worked at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. She actually worked upstairs over it. So if she had to go to work, I was the only child and she was a single mom, so if she had to go to work on a weekend, I got a very interesting babysitter called the Museum of Science and Industry. And I had my favorite exhibits. One of them was you know, a room-sized model railroad. <laughs> I loved that. And there were a few others. But there's one room in the museum, and I imagine it's still there, although they may have some problems with it, where around the wall in 37 different pictures was the development of the human fetus, starting with week one all the way to week 37. 
And I was seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way to 14. This was part of my life, was going in and checking out this room. It was a black room, and the, wall, the pictures were lit around the edges. And it fascinated me, because those early pictures for the first you know, 8, 10, 12 weeks, you could not tell that that was a human being. <laughs> there was no way. And then there was a point where it kind of looked like a tadpole. And then there was a point where it looked kind of like a lemur. And there was a point, you know, all these different critters. And it wasn't until I actually got to college, my, I ended up majoring in anthropology and my family in, in uh, Albuquerque, where I went to school, we're all anthropologists. And I heard my aunt say, well, ontology follows phylogeny. Great words. The form that we are unfolds according to the development of the species that we are. So we can follow the evolutionary speciation in our own forming of the body in the womb. That is just amazing to me still. It's absolutely amazing. So evolution is happening at a physical level even as the fetus is developing inside us. So when I was pregnant, of course, I was aware of all of that and feeling all of that. And I'm one of those people who could feel conceptions. So I knew the whole process. I was aware of the whole process. And so to know which week, you know, which stage my, my new being that I was hosting and supporting was, each step of the way was an amazing awareness and experience for me. And to feel the point at which there was a human inside me was just fabulous. Yeah. The body of my infants came out looking like a newborn. And then very quickly, they weren't newborns. <laughs> They were running around and crawling around and, and, and all that good stuff. And, of course, now they're adults. And, well, their bodies have continued to evolve <laughs> all of this time. And if I don't see any of them for any period of time, one of them, if I don't see one, then, you know, when I see them the next time, I'm going, wow, <laughs> you know, you've, you've changed. <laughs> you've evolved further. Something to be aware of. If evolution is happening, it will happen, it has happened, it does happen in us, around us, all the time. There are even new species being formed on the planet as we speak. True, we are wiping out them by the millions, but partly because of that, there are, say, species of birds that are arriving on an island and evolving into new species of birds to fit the niche of that island, very much as Charles Darwin saw it in the Galapagos way back almost you know, 150 years ago, almost 200 now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because he did that trip in 1840. Wow. <laughs> um, so we know this is happening. We're watching it happening. Evolution is happening. The question is, 
Is it conscious or not? Are we aware of it? Are we being choiceful in it? Are we choosing intentionally? Are we being intentional around this? Clearly, 99% of us are not. Most of us are just moving through life. And many of us are sort of surprised when we wake up one day and go, oh, I've changed. <laughs> In Unity and the other branches of New Thought, we talk a lot about that process of becoming. And we're aware that we have some choice in the matter about whether we are healthy or not in any given moment. But I want to tell you, you have every choice about who you are, how you look, how you feel, every moment of every day. And every choice about who you are becoming. Every choice we make leads us into a new realm of possibility. I was listening to some of my New Thought music as I was driving out here yesterday, and I was aware that there's this wonderful line in one of Karen Drucker's so songs where she says, and whatever choice I make, I know God is guiding me. Isn't that marvelous? I used to tell my kids, there aren't any wrong choices, they're just ones that take longer to get where you want to go. <laughs> so, this evolutionary process is happening, it is being guided, but it is a function of our choices. What are we going to choose now has to be decided in terms of where we want to be going in the future. I know a number of you are studying The Course in Miracles, and I think that's fabulous, and I've taught it and worked with it, and I actually have a few um, videos out there where I've helped people understand some of the lessons. And one of the points of The Course in Miracles is that what is called a miracle is a shortcut. It literally shortens the time it takes so you don't have to go through many so many years of cycles or perhaps lifetimes to get from this distress you're in to the oneness of the love. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, how does that work? And that's actually why I kept going back to the Course in Miracles and trying to teach it because I wanted to understand this. All right. So there was a point in my life where my body completely gave out. And I have been living from my shoulds and oughts and gotas and musts. It's got to happen now. I don't have any choice. And the body doesn't like that. <laughs> I call them the toxic words now. But there was this point, and I had lived this way, and the body gave out, and my options were let it completely die or find some way to re you know, restore well-being. And one of the tools that I used was the Course in Miracles. And one of the tools in the Course in Miracles, perhaps the fundamental tool in the Course in Miracles, is the tool that says, I can let go of whatever has happened to me in the past and let go of any attachment I have to making someone else wrong or me wrong. And what I found was when I did that, I got better. 
Every time I did that, the body got a little stronger. Every time I found something that I was holding on to that someone had done to me, and I could get to the point where I could let that go, and I could also take one more step and let them forgive me for holding on to it. I didn't have to talk to them about it. I could do all this inside me. When I was able to do that, I was not only a little healthier, I was a lot stronger. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is the miracle The Course in Miracles is giving us. The opportunity to not have our body-mind system wrapped up in all that garbage from the past and free to become who we really are. So I can choose in any given moment to say, oh, so-and-so is terrible and I hate what they're doing. Or I can go, oh my goodness, I'm seeing that. There must be something in me that's seeing that. I'm going to let that go and let my attachment to them not being okay, I'm going to let that go too. And I'm going to accept their forgiveness for ever holding that idea. So we both are free to evolve into who we are here to be. Now, as Jane pointed out, right now is a very difficult time in our culture, a very difficult time in this country, a very difficult time in all of Western culture, which I call empire culture because we have taken over so much and trying to control so many in this culture. Part of what I have to do is forgive myself and forgive everyone else for doing that. <laughs> And that's a big part of the work that I engage in when I have time alone. But each of us has been being trained, especially in the last six months, to blame someone for where we are today. If we're going to have the world that we know is possible, that our souls long for, I think we need to start practicing some Course in Miracles yoga. We need to start letting go and releasing our attachments to anything from the past that does not contribute to a world of harmony, a world of peace, a world where humanity can function at our full capacity, which is so much more, so very much more than we have been trained to believe. But that's another talk. I invite you today to take a look at those people, those times, those events, those institutions that for whatever reason you have felt has not, have not functioned in a healthy way or a way that helps you. And let go of that idea. Let go of the possibility that anyone, anywhere, could be doing anything other than living in love and mutual support. Bless you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing the world we are creating.
be a dreamer, be one, anytime you please, and please save me one, come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination, take a look, and you'll see. Into your imagination, there is no place to go to compare with your imagination. Living there, you'll be free if you truly wish to. So go there to be free if you truly. 